From Eyewitness News, this is Newsmakers. After a summer in Providence that felt dominated by nightclub spark violence and jump bike related crimes, what's the state of public safety in Providence and a discussion on trends in policing? Why is it harder to hire officers? Our guest on the first half of Newsmakers, Providence Public Safety Commissioner Stephen Perry. Then, this month, a 12 on 12 digital original entitled An American Debate. Immigration through the prism of southern New England and how the emotional and often divisive topic is debated here on the second half of Newsmakers. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Ted Nisi is off this week. My colleague, uh, Walt Buteau and Steph Machado will be joining me on the second half of the program to talk about the immigration debate. But joining me now, Public Safety Commissioner from Providence, Stephen Perry. Thank you very much for joining us, Commissioner. It's good to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. Let's start briefly on nightclubs. The chairman of the city licensing board has proposed the idea of a nightclub district. So this would take all the clubs that are open late, move them out of the neighborhoods, and put them in, jam them all into one part of the city altogether. Uh, and that may silence the folks who live around the nightclubs, but I'm wondering what your take is from the law enforcement perspective about that idea. Yeah, if you could do that immediately in a short period of time, the concept is good, but the problem is the process in getting there. We, he and I spoke, and there are some concerns, public safety concerns, with how that would occur. Um, the sustainability of having a police presence there along with private security. So there's a lot of moving parts to get it right. Uh, conceptually, it may be a good idea, but practically, it's probably not going to happen. Right, so you think this is dead in the water at this point? Well, I, I don't make that decision uh, as far as the police department and our view in, in doing that as quickly as it needs to be done, mm. uh, I don't see how it practically can happen. It, it would seem to me, uh, obviously you don't work in law enforcement, but if you put all these nightclubs in one spot, um, is there a concern that you're jamming all the problem children into one area and that could um, only be more of a headache for you? That's a part of it. Yeah. And, you know, we rely on private security at all of these clubs to do their job. We can't be at every club. And when they don't, then it falls upon us and the escalation of violence occurs. And so th there needs to be an embedded police presence in that concept. And, and that's a part of the concern that if you're gonna do this district, where is it? How many police officers need to be assigned to that so it's safe? You know, it'd be a major infrastructure undertaking, I would think, uh, at least privately. On this topic, last month my colleague Steph Machado and I reported the city is losing more than it's winning when sanctions against a nightclub are appealed to the state, so the Department of Business and Regulation. We went through uh, every decision since August of 2014 and found DBR ruled two-thirds of the time in favor of the establishment uh, by either staying, overturning, or reducing a punishment from the city licensing board. And look, attorney Nick Hemond, um, who represents many of the clubs, says the city licensing board ignores progressive discipline and succumbs to neighborhood pressures, so their decisions just don't withstand legal scrutiny. What's your take? Yeah, uh, there's not enough authority given to the, the licensing board. You know, they have a $2,000 cap. So when we have a violation, they know the price. 
will be maximum 2,000. We're talking about cases that probably will not involve revocation. I believe in progressive discipline, but I can name all the elements that cause eventually violence. So I would like to see a greater authority increase that $2,000 cap at the Board of Licensing to a number that's more serious. And so you get the attention of those club owners that are running and looking at the bottom line and what the profits. The, what should the fine be then? Five to 10,000. And you know, a lot, the, Nick Hemond and other attorneys and the clubs will point out, look, the violence happens almost all the time when they walk outside the establishment. The violence, for the most part, is not happening within the four walls of the bar. How can you hold them accountable for what happens down the street, even if they were inside earlier in the night? Sure, so that business is attracting people to that establishment. They have a responsibility. So it just doesn't happen, you know, outside. It usually, something happens inside and it escalates at closing. And if a then, fight breaks out at a Burger King in your city, is it Burger King's fault that uh, that fight broke out? Well, um, it's a bit different, but there's a license responsibility, so we don't have fights and stabbings at Burger Kings in their parking lots. It's usually involving alcohol, mm. late at night, over-serving, drunkenness, over-capacity, and then, look, fights are going to occur. We understand that. We're not looking to close clubs because of fistfights. They can control the type of people that go into their clubs. They can control if there are weapons on those people. And they also have to have a presence on the curtilage, on the outside, as much as possible. I know they can't control what happens 20 and 30 minutes after a club closes, but in most instances, it spills out some of the clubs close their door and ignore the problem. They created the problem by attracting people in, over-serving them, and then violence occurs. And final question on this. Uh, do, you, do you have the manpower to provide more details to these nightclubs right now? No, we don't. Uh, so we have a lot of details in a lot of areas, and we don't have the, the, the police officers, and a detail is in off-duty, mm -hmm. you know, overtime. And so there are 30, 35 clubs. We don't have enough police officers to put in each club. And I don't think that should be the responsibility of the police department taking on that liability. If you want to run a club, and we have clubs in this city that know how to run it in a safe way, it takes a lot of hard work, and it takes an investment in security. Uh, a few months ago, uh, I had the executive director of the police Chiefs Association, Sid Wardell, on this program, and we talked uh, about how hard it is to recruit police officers right now. Are you seeing that in Providence? We are. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we've seen it across the country. It's down probably by 50 percent. What's the going application. on? What do you think? You know, I don't know this new generation why there isn't an interest or a continued interest in law enforcement. I can speculate that, you know, the scrutiny and the difficulty of the job I think a, a small percentage of our population have looked down at police officers for shootings that have occurred, and particularly with race relations with police across the country. So in combination of all of that, um, young men and women probably are not considering this profession 
for those reasons and others. And they're, what you're saying is they, they might feel they could be under the microscope sure. all the time as uh, someone in law enforcement. Do you think the economy uh, plays a role in any way? Right now, unemployment is very, very low. Uh, there are a lot of options for somebody uh, coming out of college. Um, if the economy takes a dip, would you expect to see maybe more applications? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of things. I think, you know, the benefits for being a police officer, why would you, uh, what's your interest in becoming a police officer? There are a lot of reasons, but one of the attractiveness would be uh, a pension at the end of it, health care at the end of a 20-year career, etc. And I, I get and understand the unfunded liability, not just in Providence, but across. State police, for example, it was 20 years, you're eligible, 25, you had to go. That changed. Right. And so now you have to work 25 years and uh, whatever the cap is, depending on when you come on. So when you change those dynamics, you know, young men and women that are seeking a career looks at the totality. It's a great profession. We want those people that are dedicated to it, not for the money, because you don't make a whole lot of money. And the benefits, it is what it is. But we want people to do it because they're drawn to this profession. It's a difficult profession, but you, know, you, you have to commit yourself to it and live a life of a police officer. We checked the FBI crime stats yesterday, knowing that you were coming on, and overall it paints a pretty positive picture for the city of Providence uh, for the most part, except for aggravated assaults, which have sort of remained the same, maybe ticked up a little bit. Violent crime is down uh, pretty much overall. Um, but what continues to plague the city is the category of larceny from a motor vehicle, and I know from reporting on this, we are talking about tire and rim thefts. That is what is driving that number. That's gone up 27% from the last time the FBI stats were updated. Cars on cinder blocks in Providence are about as common as a Dell's lemonade stand. Why is business booming for the bad guys in this area? So I wouldn't compare it as, uh, as common as Dell's lemonade. Yeah, we've had a spat of rims and tire theft, and it's horrible when that happens, whether it's you know, a Providence resident, a student, somebody visiting. And there are pockets. We haven't had tires and uh, uh, rims theft in quite some time, three, four, five weeks. We know who they are. There's a draw because there's value to them. The manufacturing uh, companies are doing a little bit of more security so we can identify when we have a rim in a tire that it's stolen property. And when you have value and easy access, then you have a black market in which you can sell it, you have this kind of situation. So we, we did have uh, quite a few rims and, and tire thefts in the city of Providence. We were able to identify, there was not a lot of them, less than 10 that were doing that. And in the past month or two, so it's when they go to the, quiet. when they go to the ACI, yeah. the numbers drop or whatever that yeah. might be. But is there? Um, I, I guess it's like is there an organized syndicate to this sort of thing? Where, where are the tires and rims going? Do, do you guys, from an intelligence perspective, have? Is there a way to cut the head off the snake? I yeah, guess is I what mean I'm that, that's difficult because you know people that are buying them know that they're stolen. Who comes in with ten? tires and rims and will right. give cash and so those are the people that you know if if and we haven't been able to identify them and do a sting on them but stopping you know that demand 
will then curb the appetite for wanting to steal these tires that are sometimes $1,500 a tire and a rim. Providence Place Mall uh, has been, there was this past weekend, some violent clashes over there, and a colleague of mine spent a few hours in the parking garage because his car broke down, and he described it as sort of the Wild West. I think it's a bit of hyperbole there, but, um, you know, he saw mall security rolling around the garage occasionally, but never one of your officers in there. There's a substation in there, right? Uh, there is not. There's no. not, okay. Thank you. Should a cruiser be rolling through the garage, uh, and have you heard from the mall at all, asking for more help, asking for more details? Yeah, we have details. You may not see, you know, a police car rolling, but we have police officers on foot in the mall from time to time, not all the time. And so we work very closely with the uh, Providence Place Mall and the security. There's, again, there are pockets of I'll call young adults and probably kids, teenagers that just hang there. And most recently, we've had a couple disturbances in one night that we had to respond to and arrest a bunch of juveniles that were causing uh, havoc and fighting within the mall. That's not good for the mall. It's not good for the city. Um, yeah, we had a shooting a couple years ago inside yeah, the mall I that, yeah. as well. We work closely with them. Uh, there is a Providence Police presence when strategically there needs to be uh, inside the parking garage. Although you may not see, you know, a, a marked unit, there are police officers inside that mall. I have a minute left with you, Commissioner, so I want to tackle this. Providence has not had a permanent fire chief in four years. You are acting fire chief for the department. Um, there, is there something about the department, the city, or in all due respect, you, where someone doesn't want to work, be the fire chief of the Providence Fire Department? Why has this been going on for so long? Yeah, so uh, um, I've had a lot of applicants from the region and across the country. We can get a fire chief immediately. So you it's don't want be, one? No, no. It's got to be the right uh, fire chief. It's got to be the right person because Providence is a unique uh, position, and part of the struggle early on was you had to retire at age 60. And so when I looked at candidates out of New York, there was interest, but they were 58 and 59 years old. I asked the council, and the council changed that to 67 a year ago. And so the fire chief can remain on the job until the age of 67. So it's complicated. Internally, I looked at some potential uh, candidates externally as well. We need a fire chief. There's been a struggle to attract somebody, someone here, but I think we'll get one soon. All right, you, I, we have to go to break. I'm overdue, but I, the job isn't even posted right now. Are you? I mean, but you're saying you're actively searching? Yes, uh, I, I received you know an inquiry last week, and I continue to consult with uh, the headhunter that we used, and so I, I'm actively seeking a fire chief, and I'm confident in a short period of time, we'll have one in place. Providence Public Safety Commissioner Stephen Perry, thank you very much for joining us. When we come back, the immigration debate here in southern New England. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers.
Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. WPRI has embarked on an ambitious project, continuing our commit, uh, commitment to enterprise journalism. It's something we're calling 12 on 12. We tackle a big story or investigation once a month and launch it on our website, WPRI.com. This month, we're calling it an American debate, the always difficult issue of immigration, but through the prism of southern New England, stories and debates from people here. Joining me right now in studio, are my Target 12 colleagues, Walt Buteau and Steph Machado. Good to have you both here. Uh, Walt, this was primarily your project with, as I like to say, an assist from Steph Machado in there. A yeah. good assist. And um, I can say this with authority, we all sit in the same office. You work very hard on this, and uh, that shows within the product. I was wondering while I was watching this, what surprised you most? in your reporting. You know, we always see the flashpoints, like what happened at the Wyatt with the, uh, the now former correctional officer driving the into the crowd. Yeah. And, and so we see a left and a right. It seems like a solid left and a right, but I think there was more nuance than I expected and more agreement, subtle agreement, than I expected. Um, a law enforcement officer, a hardliner, Sheriff Thomas Hodgson, recognizing that while the law would allow him to quote unquote send everybody back, it's not practical. He'd like Congress to change some things so that I think what he's saying is that somebody who's been here perhaps illegally for six, seven, eight years, paid his taxes, raising a family, if he's sent back and his children are Americans and his wife's an American, guess what? That's going to cost taxpayers money. They're going right. to go on public assistance. And that he, he said there might be some wiggle room there if Congress changes its uh, policies. And then also from uh, one of the legal immigrants we talked to, just how his view of the fact that education needs to be out there from both the countries these folks come from and our country about what it takes to come in legally. And he pointed out he knows people who are more than likely illegal. However, um, he says they don't realize that what they're doing is breaking the law. I know that's hard to believe, but think about it from a language standpoint. They might not know they're breaking the law. They're coming here for an opportunity. So those were surprises. That person you're referencing, was that the... Uh, Marcos Bonilla. Who was joining the National Guard. Which I didn't know you could do. Because he's not legal. He's legal here. Right. He's a um, non-citizen. He's a non-citizen. Uh, but he joined. He can't serve overseas, but he, he goes, he reports, uh, I think it's once a month for training. So, Steph, before we get to you, uh, <coughs> as I was watching this, you know, it, you, you talk to some great people who are going through the process or yeah. have been through the process, but what I didn't see was you did not interview any undocumented people. How come? We tried. Um, we had two interviews set up and a third we were working on. Uh, one interview, the last minute, literally the day of, we were going to talk to her. Um, she um, decided she didn't want to do it. That speaks volumes, doesn't and, it? And, and, right, and another individual who's going through the court system to, um, to become a, a legal citizen says he fears the knock on his door every single day. He uh, is a former street worker, or is a street worker, so he's, he's worked in his community. He did commit a crime in the 90s, but he's trying to get a judge's okay, which a judge can do if, if the equity, if the balance of equities, the good over the bad, if the scale is toward the good, a judge can say you can stay. But he's nervous, and he has and a kids. spotlight from a media organization. That's right. Yeah. So we get it, and we didn't push too hard because I get that. Uh, yes, absolutely. Steph, your angle in there yes. uh, provided nice clarity on how law enforcement handles ICE detainers. Um, so let me just kind of put a scenario to you. What happens to someone who's in custody in Providence uh, that has an active ICE detainer on them? And on the flip side, what would happen in Smithfield? 
So what happens um, when police have someone in custody who's an undocumented immigrant? First of all, some municipalities like Providence have a policy where they don't even ask you. They don't ask you what your immigration status is. They have it in policy, in writing. Officers are not allowed to ask that. But what there might be is what's called an ICE detainer, which is basically a request from ICE. Um, it's an administrative request. It's civil. It's not a criminal arrest warrant. But they're asking police, can you hold this person so we can come get them because we would like to bring them in for immigration proceedings that could include deportation. So they send this request to police. Uh, Providence police ignore them. They have a policy that they do not hold people based on these administrative detainers. They will arrest someone who has a criminal warrant from ICE, which is something different, but they will not hold someone that has one of these detainers. Other departments in our region will hold someone on these detainers. You mentioned Smithfield. That department, you know, the chief, um, he did decline to be interviewed on camera for our 12 on 12 story, but he did speak to me and he said, you know, we will help ICE. You know, they can come to the station and pick them up, but we can, t we'll bring them to, if we're bringing, usually they're bringing someone to court for an arraignment after they've been arrested uh, the next morning. So they'll tell ICE, here's the courtroom they'll be in. Here's the time we think they're going to be in the courtroom. Here's the time we think they'll be walking out of the courtroom. So they have a different philosophy in that they're assisting this federal uh, immigration law enforcement agency with doing their job. For Providence, Commissioner Perry, who was on the first half yes. of the program, he did go on camera. Why, why does he say he will ignore, or the department will ignore those detainers? I think it's a, both a sort of a policy um, decision and also a resources decision. Providence has a number of undocumented immigrants. Um, he says, you know, Providence doesn't have the resources to sit and sift through all these detainers and decide, well, did this person cross the border or do they just overstay their visa? You know, do they do they come here when they were three years old and have grown up in Providence? Like, they, they don't have the resources to sit and decide who they're going to hold. And they also don't have the, the cells in their cell block at the station. And so they also obviously are getting their policy from above, from the mayor, um, Jorge Lorza, who strongly feels that his police department, that he overseas should not cooperate with ICE. So it's sort of a, a combination of those two things. Be honest, Walt, how did you do on the citizenship test? <laughs> well, I, I picked the questions. But <laughs> 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 well, you, you know, you get, you it's 100 questions uh, and that you study and you get 10 on the test. There's also an English uh, writing part of the test, an English comprehension part of the test, and you have to get six out of 10, so you need a D to pass. D minus technically is a six. Yes. And 90% and, uh, and pass. However, in our test online, and we did, I will admit, uh, Eli Sherman did great work, so did uh, Darren Soans and Hannah Dickinson, just yeah. to get all, all the, the target elements. 12 yeah. unit. The elements yeah. are great. You, you could spend a lot of time on there, but on the test, I just checked with Eli, 2,500 people have taken it, 66% have passed. Really? Yes. So, mm. so we should maybe so grade on a curve than, at yeah. WPRI. And, 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 give, know, us, give us an example of a question, can you, to put so, you on the spot. Um, um, you know, there's one um, that you would be able to get, guess I don't have it in front of me. Thanks for putting me on the spot. What year was the Constitution written? Written? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we know Declaration of Independence was in 1776. So it would have to be in the early 1780s? 1787. Oh, all right. So I would have failed that probably. Yeah. I think was it, wait, is that it a multiple choice? Question. Yes. I yes. might have gotten it. But, but there was other Eli's options in the 80s, so you would have. That's true. And, and 1776, I think, was the number one answer. Uh, there was a, who wrote the Federalist Papers, and it's funny about that. I didn't think of it at first because I had to read the Federalist Alexander Papers. Alexander Hamilton, right? right yeah. Well, that's you know think everyone how, knows it, from the musical. So that's right. right. <laughs> that's how I know. No, it. that's exactly right. <laughs> a, producer, a producer of the newsroom <laughs> had the answer right away, and I'm thinking, oh, ha yeah, Hamilton.
So I, one of my favorite parts of the of your. And by the way, it's not just Hamilton. There are multiple writers. No. Right. So John it's multiple Jay choice. John Jay. And they went under the. What was their pen third. name? What was their pen name? Anybody know their pen name? No. I don't know. Do you know? Publius. Well, I know it from that. Publius. I did not know that. I think that's the first I've I've ever heard of it. Um, Steph, I just want to go to. We have about two minutes left. So, um, you know, going back to Providence, and you're our Providence reporter. So, uh, good question for you. Boil it down to true or false: Is Providence a sanctuary city? I think it's true, but with the caveat that there is no definition of a sanctuary city. This is not a legal term. Providence calls itself a sanctuary city, as do a number of other um, cities across the country. Well, the current administration might disagree. With, I mean, they, yeah. they, they think there is a definition, and Providence falls into it. Right, exactly. Um, they don't completely ignore ICE and immigration enforcement. Like I said, Providence will arrest someone on a criminal warrant from ICE. But like I said, they ignore these detainers. And the Trump administration certainly considers that to be a sanctuary jurisdiction. And I spoke with ICE for this story, and they said that these sanctuary jurisdictions are harming public safety. They should be holding these immigrants for ICE. And they even tried to cut funding to Providence uh, because of the fact that they're a sanctuary city. Uh, so far, they have failed in doing that. A court put an injunction on that when they tried to cut DOJ funds to Providence and said, you can't do that because of their policies. Walt Buteau, Steph Machado, thank you very much for joining for us. 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 Thank you. Look, I urge you to go on to WPRI.com and watch the 12 on 12 Digital Original and American Debate. Walt's excellent documentary is there. You can also take a sample citizenship <laughs> test. Look at the demographic makeup of your town and the trends over the last several years of the foreign-born population. It's all on WPRI.com. I think Ted Nisi will be back next week, but either way, I'm Tim White. Thanks for watching Newsmakers. We'll see you next week.